Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, in my continued quest to introduce you to every single person at the ever-expanding Bright Star Studios, we arrive at somebody who was there at the very beginning of my personal journey with Ember Sword. Today on the show, we have Jess Mulligan, who uh, was instrumental in getting me to grips with how, how things operated uh, way back in the day <laughs> in July of 2020 when I started my journey. So um, Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, just for posterity's sake, can you tell the people what you do on Ember Sword? What your position is? Uh, well, I, I kind of float a little bit right now. I'm helping out with community and game architecting. Uh, right. Based on, so you, you need to understand, I've been making and developing and managing online games for 35 years. So one of my roles here is to just make sure we avoid the obvious mistakes that everybody else made along the journey, right? And to help out wherever I can. And right now, that's basically community, looking at the game, and also helping to use my contacts to contact people that, that we can hire, right? And people I've worked with over the years that you know might be good fit for the uh, Bright Star team. Hmm, I see. That is... Uh enlightening well what a segue uh well as these meet themes have a certain pattern let us start with the beginning what is your what is your background you mentioned 35 years which is staggering to me so if you can if you can cover some of that i would be very interested yeah well i i started in online games back in 1986 Whoa, so holy crap yeah, that was before the internet was commercialized. I mean, everything was done on the old proprietary online services. And I actually started out what was called a SysOp, a system operator, on General Electric's information service called Genie. You have to understand, that ran on a on the mainframes. GE had mainframes all over the world at the point, at that point. But in the evening, they weren't really being used that much. In the daytime, they were mostly used by banks, right, for, for transaction resolution. But in the evening, nothing was happening. Uh -huh. And then a man, man named Bill Loudon moved from CompuServe, which was really the, the main online service at that time, moved to General Electric, saw what was happening with the mainframes, made a proposal and started up Genie. And uh, a friend of mine was the uh, in charge of all the sysops. Right? He was a contractor and he brought me on to run the game section because he knew I was a huge gamer even back in 1986. And that's how I got my start in the industry. From there I moved to uh, uh, the company that would eventually become America Online. At that time, it was called Quantum Computing Services. And they brought me on to do two things. One, I was their technical writer, so I wrote all the manuals for how to use their various services. PC Link, uh, uh, Quantum Link, which was the C64 service, and Apple Link, which was the Apple service that they were bringing up, and also to be their first games producer. When I was there, we we had a number of firsts, and we did the first truly graphic-based online game with a D&D &D license called Neverwinter Nights. And it's Neverwinter yeah. Nights is rather famous, the original one. 
and you know we we went out and we we you know licensed the software from ssi which did the gold box series brought on developers you know from uh, that were nearby ssi in california and did the game so that's really how i got my start from there i moved back to uh from America Online, I moved back to Genie to be their first games producer for years. And we brought on a ton of games. Like I went to Activision, for example, and My condolences. Well, no, no. I, I mean, as a, a, a Genie employee, I contacted Activision and licensed the Mech Warrior license, and uh -huh. we did multiplayer Battletech. You know, we took that, we took the Mech Warrior front end, did a new back end on it, and we had this whole thing where you'd be a mercenary. It's still one of my favorite games of all time, right? This was back, I think it launched in 1990, 91. I'd have to actually go back and check and see. So I spent some years at Genie, then I moved into the game publisher side of the industry with interplay in 1994 oh hell yeah interplay yeah yeah does anybody remember games like you know you know uh you know dragon's gate uh uh boy what were some of the others battle chess you know oh, battle chess God. was one of their evergreen product anyway they had uh, the license for the uh, star trek the old series they brought me on to like start their online division and do a star trek online game and that that eventually fell through you know paramount got sold and they canceled all the star trek contract uh, contracts and i know it's just like i've had the star trek license in my hand three times now <laughs> and every time paramount ended up getting sold or realigned or something and the contract was canceled on their end so i've never gotten to do an online star trek game and that was the game i really wanted to do back in the day right my god oh god were you okay this is gonna be one of the left field but were you there for clay fighter 63 and one thirds Oh yeah, I was there when they were making it. Yeah. Fuck yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I knew the guy who, uh, you know, the art director did most of the uh, the the claymation himself, right? I mean, he was really into it. Sick, my god. Yeah. <clears throat> of course, Fallout fall fell under that umbrella at the time. Oh yeah, you know, I I mean, I sat right next to the Fallout team. We went to lunch like three times a week discussing how we were going to do the online game for Fallout after the standalone game shipped. But because of the delays and, you know, at one point they were using the GURPS license, then they had to pull the GURPS license out and everything. It took too long. I, I ended up leaving the company before the game actually shipped. So I never got to do Fallout online either. We could have an online Fallout game in 1996 or 97, Holy you know, if, if things had worked out. That, that that seems very cursed like you you are just on the cusp of something you really wanted to do and it always has to do with the internet i'm so happy that impersonal is going as well as it is yeah <laughs> but it gets to be part of yeah. shipping an online game <laughs> yeah exactly you know just a, yeah you know you look back i look back at you know my career and my time i've spent in the industry 
and what's happened at other companies is it really only about like maybe well at one point i remember when when i went into uh independent consulting in 1997 i did that for a number of years i did up a, a series of slides for my clients they'd call me in and have me come in and do a briefing for the senior staff on what's the status of the online game industry right now. In 1997, I had 197 online games in development in the U.S. on my list. Of that, only 12 of those games ever shipped. That yikes. <clears throat> yeah, at, at that point, everybody was doing a game. I mean, Turner Broadcasting was doing a couple of games. Turner goddamn broadcasting? Ted Turner, WCW wrestling to Turner Broadcasting? Yeah, yeah, they had, a, they had a game division. Yeah, 97 was like the second wave. Everybody was climbing on board, right? The internet had been commercialized in 93. Everybody saw the potential after a few online games went live on the internet and we're making pretty good money so oh, we've got to get in on this so everybody was doing it i mean everybody in hollywood all the studios started a game division you know everybody paramount warner brothers you know fox you name it everybody had a, an online game division but most of those divisions never really shipped a game well, it stands to reason then, because, I mean, if they were chasing a trend, they didn't have the infrastructure in place, I would assume, or the experience. Yeah. Yeah, but they spent a lot of money trying to get it there. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, I used to say back from 97 until about uh, 2002, you know, I, I gave talks at a lot of conferences during that period, and I used to start out with saying, I'm the I'm the consultant who got paid a crap load of money to give advice that was never heeded. So I mean, it's just like all, all those guys hired me at that point, right? To just come in and tell them how to do it, how to set up the infrastructure, the, the skills and talents that were needed. And they kind of, you know, either they totally ignored it or they went ahead and hired all those people and then ignored them. Oh, come on. Nah, it, you know, it's the same thing happening today. I mean, look what happened at Google Stadia, Amazon Games. You know, those guys have spent, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars on games and put people in charge that had no idea, right? I mean, had never had never done a multiplayer game before, never done an MMORPG before, and those people just ignored the experts. It's it's still very weird to me that how in the world do you get access to the, so many resources and just not know at all how to spend them? I guess it, it comes with them coming from a different industry altogether, but it's the hubris is still staggering. Yeah, it is. You have to remember, part of it is politics too, right? So it's these large tech companies the people that got put in charge were the people who were friends with senior management and really wanted to do games, really wanted to be in the games industry. But they'd never made a game before. They'd just been playing games all their lives and figured that, you know, in some cases it was that they figured, well, I've, I've played enough games. I know how to do them. I know what's popular, right? Which and it does not yeah. work that way. <laughs> No, it really doesn't, you know? So, you know, I, I mean, I look at 
like both Google and Amazon, and without naming names, they had some of the premier talent in the game industry making games for them, right? I mean, in-house. I mean, people who, given their head, would have been able to lead them to huge success, right? But they ignored all the warnings from these people. I mean, Google Stadia is a perfect example. This has been written up by, you know, dozens of sites. I'd say, you know, it's not like I'm revealing secret information. But, you know, they invested, you know, the money in projects that normally take four to five years to come out and got impatient after two years and shut them down. I was like, <laughs> you know, where was your thinking process there? It's, it's, it is strange, but it is what it is. I mean, all we can do, I mean, in terms of us is that we are, we know not to make these mistakes since, you know, the examples yeah. are regrettably recent enough and are, are almost on like a loop as to where <laughs> we, we can never forget those lessons. So hooray for that. That exactly. Was, that was a very dour topic, but uh, where were well, we then? Well, you know, early two thousands. What happened then? Yeah. Uh, well, early two thousands. Uh, I was uh, two thousand and three. I was hired by Turbine Games to be the executive producer on the Asheron's Call franchise. Now, at that point, they had two games in the franchise, right? Asheron's Call and Asheron's Call Two. Uh, they did the games for Microsoft. Microsoft was doing all the hosting and customer service and etc. And uh, the relationship wasn't great at that point. They brought me in. So they brought me in really to fix the relationship. But what we ended up doing was buying the games back from Microsoft and setting up a publishing arm ourselves. It's like that. I've never worked longer hours in my life. We had, after we signed the contract, we had something like three and a half months to get everything set up to take over the games so we had to set up an entire publishing arm customer service you know community the whole nine yards technical support in three and a half months get everybody hired get you know all the tools in place you know those were like 16 hour days for three and a half months to bring them on board but we did it yeah so you know i i, I was there for three and a half years, I believe, uh, opened up an office in California for them so that we could, uh, you know, Turbine was based in near Boston and we opened up a LA office, basically, a, you know, a Santa Monica office so we could have uh, access to more talent, right? Hard to get people to move to Boston, you know, f with their ugly winters <laughs> when uh, you've been living in Southern California yeah. for years. And the accents and the Dunkin' Donuts and the, the bad words they say. Yeah, yeah. So, my my know, frame that... of reference for Boston is just Ben Affleck movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, so I, I arrived in Boston on February 3rd. 2003 I rolled in parked at the apartment that uh, they were renting for me while I looked for my own 
the minute I turned off the car, snow started to fall, right? Just a light dusting. And it did not stop until there were 29 inches of snow on the ground. Holy crap. Okay. So that was my introduction to Boston. <laughs> it was like, holy crap, 29 inches. Yeah, and two days later, it got down to 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So, like, death in the shining temperatures. Yeah, I'd been living in Austin before that, right? So I'd been been a contractor on the original Lord of the Rings online game down in Austin. Yeah, for uh, mm3d.com. So, you know, the winters in Austin are not that nasty. (laughs) It's like, oh, man. Yeah, so I worked, uh, I was at Turbine for about three and a half years, and then I went back into uh, independent consulting, and almost immediately, a a friend that I had made in Paris, France, uh, he had come over for conferences in the U.S., Uh, started a company called Nevrax, and they had just launched their first MMORPG called Saga of Ryzen. And it was a disastrous launch, not because the game kept crashing, but the publisher that they chose had sold, pre-sold 125,000 units, which was really good in 2005, and couldn't get them on the shelves. Right, so people just started canceling their orders left and right because oh, they no. couldn't get the game. It wasn't available, and they were trying to. You know, the game was successful for the people that played it. But anyway, they needed someone to help keep the company alive. So the board of directors hired me to come in as, uh, like a, a troubleshooter. You know, hired gun, executive producer to get everything going. And that was my introduction to Europe. I got to live in Paris on somebody else's dime for two years. Nice. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, right? Love Paris. I got to tell you, Paris is still my favorite city in the entire world. Awesome. And it's just, I used to, I I mean, there's so many underground metro stops there. And outside of them on Saturdays, outside the stations, Every one of them seemed to have their own little version of a flea market slash, you know, farmer's market. Mm-hmm. So every day I would pick a, every Saturday, I would pick a metro station I hadn't been to and go to it and see what their farmer's market was like. And it was just absolutely wonderful. I just, I really love that town. Matter of fact, the first Sunday I was in Paris... You know, I arrived on a Saturday evening, got up Sunday. Nobody had told me that nothing was open on Sunday, so I couldn't do any grocery shopping. So I just wandered around the neighborhood of the apartment, and I heard classical orchestra music being performed. So I followed the sound into a courtyard of some buildings, and there was like a 20-piece orchestra playing for people to toss in change. And uh, I stood there for a while, you know, a half hour or so, until somebody happened to mention that this was Paris's Metropolitan Orchestra. What? That, that came out on Sundays and picked a different courtyard every day, every Sunday, and just played for the people and put out a guitar case to take tips. But they wanted to bring their classical music 
to people who couldn't afford the, to buy a ticket at the opera house to come see them. Oh my God, that's beautiful. It's perfect. Uh, I was like totally entranced. You know, I paid 20 euros for one of their CDs, right? And was just like, I was, and I was totally amazed at the, at how good the music was. So anyway, that's my introduction to Europe. I spent most of the next 15 years in Europe, right? Because of that, I moved to Germany to work on Anno uh, online. I, mean, you know, I don't know if you know the Anno series. I do. I, I believe Ubisoft owns them now. Yeah, Ubisoft owns them now. It was uh, a company called Sunflower owned it uh, when uh, they hired me in like 2006, 2007 to come in and start helping design and set up the infrastructure to do an Ono online game. And again, here I am, you know, I spent two years putting this whole project together, working with the original Ono designer to, to get all the formulas for crafting and, you know, town building together, getting the whole thing together. And then they sell to Ubisoft and Ubisoft at that time, this was like two, late 2007, said, yeah, we're not interested in MMORPGs right now, so bye. What's <laughs> this like? Oh my God! So I really wanted to do that game too. It would have it would have been great. So, and, but after that, uh, a business incubator in Switzerland hired me to set up. They wanted to do some experimentation with commercial online products. You know, on you know multiplayer online games for a really casual audience to see if a casual audience would be attracted to MMORPGs and the like. So we did that for two and a half years. And at the end of it, I just told them, you know, it's pretty obvious that the type of games you guys want to do aren't interesting to the crowd that pays for online games. So we shut that down and uh, then I moved back to the U.S. And then I moved to Germany for six years and worked for Travian uh, in uh, Germany. Did the, the game Travian and other games. And that was great. And, uh, and then uh, I went back to the U.S. in 2019. Uh, started consulting again. And then in early 2020, uh, Mark you know, the, the CEO of uh, Brightstar contacted me about coming on board as a contractor to help them with both community and just looking over their game design and where they were going with game design at the time. This is, remember, this is like a year and a half ago. And just to make sure they were heading in the right direction and to point out any real risks they hadn't seen. And that's how I got involved with Embersword. That uh, very nicely covers the the second question, which was, you know, how did you come to work in Ember Sword? Which, very elegant. This this might be my favorite beginning of a Beat the Team podcast ever. Awesome. Well, uh, let's let's keep with the Ember Sword topic then. Um, what is your vision for the game? You know what? Here's the thing. I don't have a personal vision for a game. I bought into the vision that the original crew put into it. I looked at it. I mean, when they first invited me to look at it and come on board as a short-term contractor, I looked at it. I was fascinated by what you could do with the blockchain, right? And lots of potential and opportunity for online games in terms of ownership. 
but also so look at one of the things that's just can be a real problem for online games is customer service and keeping track of who owns what right i mean when you like i look over my 35 years i look at the all the customer service shops that i've been involved with one of our biggest problems is always people writing in to say hey that you know i've been hacked and these weapons and armor are missing and when we finally you know spend like eight nine hours man hours digging into it turns out they'd given somebody you know access to their account which is almost always not allowed in these online games right and that guy had, had stolen the stuff and sold it right and you're giving it to somebody else right so these guys were basically lying to us and trying to get their stuff back trying to get us to replace it with the blockchain they can't do that because it's obvious what the transfer is at any one moment with literally less than a minute's research right so you don't have to dig into the database you just look and see oh well that sword got passed over to that guy at such and such a time on such and such a date so nobody could call us up and say it's missing from my inventory all of a sudden you know 20 to 30 percent of your customer service calls gone right they're not taking up your time anymore and so that fascinated me about the blockchain so back to the original question i bought into the vision they had for the game so my job is to help them implement that vision in the best way possible. That's it, right? I look at how these guys are doing it. If I see a risk, I point that risk out, okay? And say, look, you gotta think about this. Yeah, make sure you have, you know, fault tolerance in for this risk, and then we're ready to go. And then I help out. Yeah, I, I've done, I've. I've been in charge of pretty much everything in terms of live operations and development of an online game, except art direction, okay? I can't even draw a stick figure, right? <laughs> That's how bad I am at art, right? So, but, you know, I know enough about how art is produced that an art director can't blow smoke up my ass if he's inclined to, right? So... So my job is I'm I'm probably going to do a lot of floating on uh, on the Ember Sword project. I mean, I'll help out with community, although it seems to be in fairly good shape right now. You know, I mean, I got like I got no major issues. Just I, you know, I, they've only brought me in uh, starting again. So I did a short term contract last year. They picked me up again this year after they had the land sale. I've been looking at community. They're doing a pretty damn good job, right? I got no complaints. So, I, you know, I may help streamline the process a lot. But, you know, at that point, you know, I'm really spending more of my time on contacting my contacts and saying, don't you want to go be interviewed over at Ember Sword? <laughs> um, the, it, it's interesting that you would mention... This is this is a very fresh take on the vision because of course it, your your perspective is very unique. I, I do appreciate the focus on to a certain extent efficiency because it is something that we've been trying very hard to push to the forefront of 
development on Ember Sword pretty much on all fronts. And it's, just, it's interesting you should mention that the community seems fine because that was one of the... I know I keep reiterating this over podcasts, everybody listening, but it is important to mention, again, that we are very much committed to just being as transparent as we possibly can and you know communicating everything in a clear manner and consistently reiterating what ember sword is about so it's nice that you know you having just come back uh can recognize this and you know it's it's very obvious so we are doing our job right which is which is awesome to hear i think what we really need to concentrate on with community is the behind the scenes stuff make sure that the infrastructure is in place so that when the horde comes roaring in you know after after beta and we've launched there will be a horde i have no doubt make sure that our processes procedures and the structures don't just disintegrate under the horde right so you know it's i you know i i really love the way that you know community and social media is like completely transparent at this point it's beautiful i mean it's it's a tricky tightrope to walk we are building a game for the people at the same time we are building a game right so we need to it's it's this is sort of a almost a philosophical question you know where does uh our ideas where do our ideas end and where does input uh overtake our ideas to make just a mishmash right we i think or rather i believe and i see that we are very good at walking the line between taking what the community is saying and incorporating into development while still keeping true to the actual or the the intended vision of ember sword which is excellent and part of that is the iterative building process that we're we've incorporated where the transparency again huge part of that we are very open about at what stage of the development the game is how we're going to be slowly through iteration add more things to the game and eventually once once launch comes and the horde starts banging on the doors there's going to be enough alleyways and analogy 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 (laughs) to make sure that you know the the actual game is stable that the community can handle the insane influx of players and community members and for you know everything's going to be awesome at least that's my personal belief and i'm working my ass off to make it happen so you know what i hope the community understands and what we're going to need to reinforce especially during closed beta is that so everybody has ideas everybody has suggestions but the community is not this monolithic block that agrees on everything you know every there's various factions within the community and they all have their own agenda and it's all based on wanting the game to be as good as possible but those agendas often conflict right oh yeah so if we just took every suggestion that everybody made and tried to incorporate it in the game this would be a huge failure oh yeah you know? yeah any game would be a huge failure if that's happened so you know we need to make sure that they trust that you know we want the game to be great too so we're going to pick and choose right mm-hmm. we have to pick and choose and make sure that we're responsible for the care and health of the game right so we can't just be willy-nilly about it and that's going to be our greatest communication challenge going forward like i say especially when we get into the closed beta process oh yeah which is a ways away but it is important to know that we are thinking about these things now 
exactly this is this is a very poetic way i guess to, to transition into the freeballing section of the podcast now that we've uh peeled the curtain back a bit uh let's peel the curtain back on your gaming hobbies i'm fantastic at segways uh this is a part of the cast where we pick your gaming history and you share some memories so that you know the people get to know a bit about who you are in terms of your gaming habits and this is the third time i've used the word gaming habits <laughs> word of phrase let's start with your top three favorite games of all time remember i've got 35 years of this industry so i know this is gonna be a challenge actually let's make it spicy top three you can choose to answer top three games you've played or top three games you've worked on all right let me start with top three games i've played and maybe worked on my favorite game of all time was multiplayer battletech right so if you've ever played Battletech or Mech Warrior, you know that you know giant mechs walking around. Some of them have jetpacks and can fly a bit. I really loved multiplayer Battletech because you started out as a leader of a mercenary pack, which was just yourself basically, and you had a map of all the galaxy that was inhabited by the six major houses of the Battletech universe, you could go to that to a planet, pick it, and start doing missions against the NPC mechs. And if you did enough successful missions, you would turn that planet to the house that you were working for since you were a mercenary, right? You could hire other players when you salvaged other mechs. You could hire other players to be in your mercenary lance. We had a great time. I played that game. I I loved I loved that game so much that even though I had a free account because I was in charge of it on Genie, I also had a paying account. Here's how here's how much I love that game. Remember, at this time there were no flat rates. Okay. I paid $5 an hour to play that what game voluntarily. No! Oh my Yes, God. I did. That's how much I loved that game. I wanted my own account, and I paid $5 an hour to play it. That's legit. That is legit. Yeah. Oh, and that was like after 7 p.m. That was the $5 an hour. Before 7 p.m., if I wanted to get on in the afternoon, it was $19 an hour. Oh, my God. Yeah, remember, the banks got first priority, right? So it's like in the daytime. Oh, Jesus. So anyway, you could probably find on Wikipedia or out there people with uh, fond memories of uh, multiplayer battle tech. My favorite was a, a four-on-four battle that we were having in uh, the battle arena. Solaris is the... Uh, uh, the gaming arena in the Battletech universe. And at one point they had that in the game. And so we had a four on four battle inside a, an urban area. And all I can remember about that game was everybody had jet packs. We were all using light mechs. Mm -hmm. And so we were hopping over buildings and trying to land on each other. <laughs> and we'd get, we'd 
ram each other and then we'd hit the jets at the same time so here we are shooting up into the air and twirling around and all we see is all these mechs in the air trying to get aiming on everybody it was great it was like one of my favorite battles ever okay so that's my favorite game of all time uh i think uh another one was civilization 2 nice yeah i probably put I, I had to have put well over two, three thousand hours into that game. I just loved it so much. And just, you know, and at one point, you know, I was challenging myself on the top levels and I refused to save the game, right? I wanted to win without ever saving the game. So, you know, sometimes I'd have like 12 hour gaming sessions in Civilization 2 trying to win that game because I couldn't save it. Then there's that. And then the third is probably Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe. Okay, you have stumped me. I have deep, deep knowledge of a whole bunch of obscure games. This one, you okay? Uh, what is it? That what that was Lucas Arts. It was a oh. World War II flight simulator. Okay. All right. It was groundbreaking at the time, early mid nineties. Right. I mean, it it revolutionized three D technology in games. It was huge. So you could fly, you could do a campaign, you could fly pretty much any aircraft on the Allied or German side. Uh, it took place mainly over Europe, right? They pretty much ignored the, the Pacific in that one. But it was just, a, the, the art was fantastic for the time. The physics were fantastic. Uh, the campaigns were incredible, right? It was accessible. Even if you weren't very good at flight simulators, you could still have a great time with that game. I bought every single uh, add-on disc that came out, and there were several. I just, I, I loved that game. Uh, games I'm playing right now, so I've been playing World of Tanks, I would have figured, yeah. I, I was going to ask if you, you were playing any of the modern equivalents of those games. Sure, I've been playing World of Tanks since 2012. I, I love the random battles in that game, even though they could be incredibly frustrating. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so I just, I love the random battles. I'm not even a member of a clan because I can't, you know, I can't afford the time to be a member of a clan on the European map. Because those guys are fanatics, right? <laughs> I think they put in five or six hours a day each. And I have so many other things that I have to do work-wise, consulting-wise. I just can't afford to be a member of a clan. But still in all, yeah, I look back over my record. I've got accounts on both the uh, North American and European servers. And I've fought over, you know, 12,000 battles. Jesus in world of tanks you know i've got several level you know tier 10 vehicles i just i love the game so i'm playing that i'm playing civilization 6 i played civilization 5 before it and then i have a third slot where i play games but mainly it's games that i play i try to find comparable games to my clients games that i'm working on right now so like right now I'm looking to see if there's anything comparable to Ember Sword that I should play and see what they're doing. And I have I have other clients in Europe 
right now as well and I'm looking for comparables to their games or sometimes you know clients send me games saying we want you to evaluate this we're thinking of investing in it right so so I save the third slot for that so I get to play a lot of different games that is that is pretty cool that's actually I, I have sort of a similar structure where I have a, a little note folder on my phone and I have a little currently playing tab that I've made for myself and I just write down what I play so I don't, you know, forget what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's nice to see that similarity. Before before I move on to the other questions, I was curious, uh, another 4X game came out very recently, I believe on Xbox Game Pass, called Humankind. And a friend of mine has been giving it very glowing praise. So if you do like Civilization, I would highly recommend you check that one out. Okay, I will. Now... Uh, Civilization, as you mentioned, took 12 hours at a time from your life. Uh, is that your longest gaming session, or does something else take that top spot? No, my longest gaming session wasn't even a video game. My longest gaming session was a Kingmaker tournament at the Origin Game Conference in 1992, I think it was. <laughs> Uh, four days. Four days? Yep, 96 hours. Did you <laughs> stand up? Oh, yeah. You know, we took breaks in between, 10-minute break here, food break here and there. But, you know, it it was... It was a game we were going to play till somebody win. You know, if you haven't played Kingmaker... It's about the War of the Roses in England, a board game about the War of the Roses. And the person who ends up with the last royal heir alive wins. And this was the championship round for the game. <laughs> Holy crap. And, you know, so there were nine of us at the table that had made the championship round. And we were all so good. We were evenly matched. And nobody could capture other... So there, there were, if I remember right in Kingmaker, there's like seven royal heirs. And seven different players had a royal heir. Nobody could capture the royal heir that another player had. So it took us four days for the forces to become aligned enough and the alliances to become aligned enough for somebody to be able to be the last person on the board with a royal heir. <laughs> but we all wanted to win, so none of us were quitting. I mean, we had people falling asleep at the table, <laughs> taking cat naps. You know? <laughs> so, but, but, you know, at, at the, the Origin Game Convention was only two days long. We went two days over. <laughs> <laughs> you win hands down with your UN War Summit. Like, nobody, I believe, is going to be able to touch this. Yeah. <laughs> Four days. Jesus H. Christ. Yeah, it was. I'd, I'd never want to do that again. I mean, I was young and healthy, right? You know, until then. Water. Water is the key. Just chug, like, two gallons, and you'll be good and right as rain to pull a five-day one of those. Oh my God! Yeah, you know, it was just, I, we we got to the point where I think people were thinking about it. This isn't worth it anymore. I'm just going to let this guy capture me and kill my <laughs> royal heir so I can get out of here. You God, it sounds like actual warfare, just attrition and misery. Just 
disgusting. It really was. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> it was. It was a lot of fun, but I never want to do that again. Fantastic. And is that your fondest gaming memory to round out the podcast questions, or can you think of something else? No, uh, I think my fondest memory is this: when I was at Origin Systems working on uh, Ultima Online. You know, we got access to all... EA owned us at that point. And so we got access to buy all of EA's games at cut rates, right? So we had Delta Force 2 came out. So we played a lot of LAN games on Delta Force 2, right? If, you, if you're not familiar with it, you know, from uh, 99, 2000, it was a shooter. I actually had a PC cafe next to my house and I played Delta Force religiously. Ah, okay. So we used to play every day, right? You know, so my fondest gaming memory is we were playing a capture the flag scenario and somehow we got down to, it was tied, basically. Time was running out. I had been killed, so I was running back from the spawn point. And I ran to the other team's flag point where they would bring the flag back. And I'd set up in a sniping position. But to get there, I I had to fight several times. And I was down to four rounds of ammo. Somehow, when I got set up in the sniping position, I realized every single one of my teammates had been killed in a short amount of time, and they were all back at the spawn point. And the enemy team had the flag. And there are six of these guys. Okay? So as they're trying to run the flag back into the spawn point, right, to capture the flag, I shot the guy, and he dropped the flag, and it was about maybe 20 meters from where they needed to take it. Now I've got three rounds left, and all six of them are hiding behind the big rock at the spawn point where they need to capture the flag, and I'm the only guy that can stop them. And they're obviously arguing about who's going to go out and try to get the flag because nobody wants to come and try to find me. Right? I'm up on a hill, I'll see them coming, and I'll shoot them, and they got to figure I've got all this ammo, right? So now we've got this tense minute, minute and a half standoff where the guys keep running out, trying to grab the flag. Three times they do that, and I shoot them. Now I'm out of ammo, <laughs> and I think, now we're going to lose the game. But nobody wanted to challenge it at that point. You know, 30 seconds later, my teammates come up and it ends in a tie. And I just remember I'm so tense. I'm shaking. I'm sweating from my forehead that minute and a half to two minutes where I'm having to hold off the whole team with three bullets. Right. And the biggest bluff I've ever had to run. And we actually managed to pull a tie out of it. That's my fondest gaming memory. I didn't breathe throughout the whole of the... I was... I'm leaning forward. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That was so tense. I felt it across decades. Jesus. Oh. I I take these way too personally, man. Like, I... (laughs) It's the downside of being so invested in stories. Just, wow. 
They should make a movie about this. Why the hell did Clint Eastwood make American Sniper? This is much better. Bradley Cooper, who? <laughs> God, well, that was a fantastic note to end this podcast on. Um, you rival Sam in storytelling ability. <laughs> I assume if I get both of you on a podcast, it's going to be like the Silmarillion, essentially. Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> thank you so, so much for taking the time to do this uh, in what I assume is going to be a catastrophically busy day for you. This was awesome. It's legit one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. Uh, I do say that very frequently, but this was this was really, really truly amazing so thank you thank you very much well, you know it was my pleasure thank you for having me on board here and uh thank you for to everybody for listening uh we will catch you next time everybody goodbye hey you you made it to the end congratulations that must mean you like us enough to want more right well good news we're all over the internet go to embersword.com and subscribe to our newsletter for a chance to play the game early as well as the latest interesting tidbits on the game and the team. Join our lovely Discord community over at discord.gg slash embersword. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at PlayEmbersword for regular updates on what we're up to. And remember the basics. Drink water, be kind to each other, and spread the word about Embersword.